seething about eating at the outdoor seating without heating. This week, we're prepping for winter on our patios and on our roads, hopefully to keep everything moving smoothly. Except anywhere that intersects with the metro line. Those intersections will fail. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 103. Where I got nothing off the top. Um, what's what's up this week, Mac? I got nothing either. <laughs> it's well, I mean, I will say it's a nice to have a normal week back. Just you and I, Troy. Feels like old times. I'm going to excuse this because you know we've had a large slew of guests. We had Elise Stolte, we had Councillor Walters, we had Emily, the managing editor of Taproot. You know, we had this long list of guests. I'm out of practice, and we're just going to get back into practice. And what better way to get back into practice than with the rapid fire segment. As the original implementation date for the bus network redesign has come and gone, Edmonton this week is declaring success after putting up some new bus stop signs. In a statement at SAB, the Transit Advisory Board for ETS, was jubilant, saying, quote, We're glad Edmonton is taking transit seriously, and this step forward of not making any material changes, but putting up signs and committing to future action, means that the city is as committed to transit as they are to traffic safety. Which is, we're told, frequently, a lot. A local flower shop owned by a Karen, no, not that kind, has offered all Karens, still not that kind, free flowers to cope with the modern struggle of having that name. The promotion comes as Karen, that kind, has become a popular way to refer to anyone who wants to speak to the manager. The manager of the shop, paradoxically named Karen, was just sharing how she's Karen for the burden others with the name are barren. We wanted to reach out for comment, but at press time, we could not will ourselves to ask to speak to the manager, lest we doom all Max and Troys to the same fate. Limos in Edmonton have seen their city dispatch and licensing fees completely removed for 2020, with vehicles for hire seeing their fees reduced by half, as council opted to capitulate to their requests for relief. While we here at Speaking Municipally have made light of the need to help limo operators through these troubling times, it's important that we stop to recognize the extreme lengths limos go to. About double that of a regular car. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Back to School Again, a podcast about midlife learners. In the current season, we... And the current season, presented in partnership with Athabasca University, host Katrina Ingram interviews educators and grad school students about their experience. For instance, episode three features guest Alan Reed, who found the discipline to study onboard cruise ships while sailing around the world. You can't do that anymore. Find Back to School Again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also find it at backtoschoolagain.ca. That's backtoschoolagain.ca. So we had big news this week, continuing on the big news from last week, which is that Iveson's really going at it, trying to solve this whole homelessness issue seems to be some sort of new fad affecting the Edmonton area that we have never heard about before the past five weeks. We heard that the Edmonton Convention Center will be temporary housing at least until March 2021 for those experiencing houselessness in Edmonton. That's right. Last week, we told you that the city was committed to doing this by the end of the month. They're using $8 million that they've received uh, from the other orders of government in order to do this. We didn't know where they were going to set it up. We saw online people talking about the expo center which was used very successfully as a as a testing and day center um, during the pandemic 
the other place that I kept seeing mentioned online was the Colosseum, which was an interesting suggestion. Uh, not feasible because it's been mothballed essentially and will be demolished at some point. But people thought, oh, there's this big empty building. Maybe that could work. And the Colosseum Inn has been used as transitional housing. So, you know, similar names. Easy to make that jump. Yeah, for sure. In the end, uh, the city announced that it will be the Edmonton Convention Center downtown. It'll be open 24-7. It'll be operated by community agencies. It will uh, be home to up to 300 people overnight and up to 400 people during the day, uh, as you mentioned, Troy, until March 31 uh, of next year. It'll be open, the plan is, by the end of October. And this is the whole idea is to get people into some sort of temporary accommodation to keep them safe and warm and a place to eat and all that kind of stuff, bathrooms, before it gets really, really cold. It already feels cold outside, but it's going to get worse. So how does this align with Light Horse Park and the former, uh, that was in McIntyre Park, just north of White Ave? Because that camp has been announced that they're winding down. Is this aligned or is this just a convenient timing? Presumably it's aligned. The city put out two news releases, one about the convention center and a separate one about uh, the conversation and and short-term accommodation being offered to the encampment at Lighthouse Park. That news release did not mention the convention center at all. So you have to presume that that is one of the options that has been presented uh, to the organizers of that camp. Um, And the city you know, says they're working with them to figure out a way to wind it down by October 18th. But on the other hand, if the convention center is not ready to go until the end of the month, there's a couple of weeks in between where those folks aren't going to have a place to stay. So convenient timing, but they, and you would think they're connected, but the city seems to be being a bit careful about that. Also, I haven't heard any mention of Camp Pekawewen ramping down in after this news. Um, did I miss something or is that still the case? No, that's still the case. Organizers there haven't set a date for when the camp will be wound down. And the city has basically just said that they are still in communication with the organizers, uh, but no details have come about what the future holds for that encampment. So overall, like I'm pretty excited about this, especially one of the pieces of news is that the convention center will allow pets, which frequently has been a problem with shelters across the city. You know, if you have your forever friend, you don't want to sleep without your dog, or I don't know that I've ever seen someone houseless roaming with a cat on a leash, but it's possible. Potential. Yeah, you wouldn't want to leave your forever friend outside while you sleep, so that causes a lot of people to sleep outside. Pets will be allowed inside. The one thing that made me stop is, by last count, there's just over 600 people that are chronically sleeping outside in Edmonton. That was the number we've been hearing. And the convention center can house 300 people overnight. And I've seen the size of Pekawewin and Light Horse Park. When you combine those two, there's quite a few people there. Even if you just move those people and shelter them warm and safe inside the convention center, I feel like you're getting pretty close to capacity, no? Probably. I mean, we shouldn't forget that there are other facilities though, right? And this is the defense, essentially, the province has continued to use that the other uh, centers, the Bissell, the Herb Jameson, others are not at capacity yet. And so there is other places for people to to stay. Um, the conventions that are, as you note, can't house all 600 people that the city estimates are, are sleeping outside, but a significant number of them, for sure. You mentioned that other shelters are not at capacity. Has there been any talk of 
the other organizations and other support groups being on board with this? Or is this seen as the city sort of moving in and stepping on the toes of other volunteer and other support organizations that have been on the front lines for quite a bit longer and really know the beat probably a little bit better? It sounds like the city's doing the right thing here. They are not claiming to operate this new temporary facility. It's a city facility, of course, but they said it's going to be operated by community agencies from the homeless serving sector. Uh, One of the objectives there, of course, is to uh, transition people, right? So there's housing support workers who can help perhaps get these folks into bridge accommodation or to find longer term housing, as well as access other uh, resources for either mental health or addictions or other just culturally appropriate health and wellness. Um, So that's a good thing. It's not the city taking this on by themselves. They are making the facility available and, uh, you know, funding it essentially, but it's the other agencies that are going to make this thing work. Well, speaking of making things work, I think there's no better time to talk about the Metroline LRT, which gotta say a couple decades it feels like later still doesn't quite completely work and we got some new nuggets of information on that this week i mean decades is right it feels like that and the thing that really caught my eye in the news about this we're going to talk about uh the FOIP request uh that that global news uh, wrote about this week was a quote from the mayor who said five minute frequency is a long way out like understatement of the decade right It's really interesting because when the Metro line was built, we chose the uh, communications-based protocol for signaling rather than the block-based that the Capital line used because we wanted to future-proof it. You know, we wanted to say, well, we're going to run this every five minutes down the line. And then throughout all the mishaps, the city decided, okay, well, we're actually just going to implement our own block-based thing, and we can probably get that down to 10 or five minutes and then the mayor of course coming out this week and saying are we really ever gonna get to five minutes yeah that's a future us problem the whole metro line i'll say it boondoggle has been (laughs) going down the line and saying ah you know what this is a little bit too hard let's just scale back our wants for what we have in front of us it really doesn't help the case for building more LRT because this was a very poorly done project basically all the way down the line. And continues to be. So we're currently at peak hour frequency of every 15 minutes. And the freedom of information request that uh, Global News wrote about resulted in uh, internal emails being released. And in one email, it said, uh, quote, intersections will fail in the peak hours, end quote, if trains run every five minutes. So there might be a reason we're not anywhere close to five minute frequencies. One thing with this, though, is when this article was published and when that quote was circulated around, it was very much written about as a smoking gun. Like, hey, we got you administration. But I don't know if you've ever worked in a organization with 15,000 employees before I think they have opinions like if you can get a reasonable number of people to vote for candidates who are saying let's kibosh LRT I think it's reasonable to assume there are some people working with the city that don't like LRT someone within the organization sending an email that is saying this is catastrophic this will cause intersections to fail in the peak hours okay I mean There are probably people that think that we don't have the broader context for that quote. And if that quote was even materially justified with data, or if it was just one employee upset and raising some concerns that they have via their opinion. Um, So I don't know. 
it might be a smoking gun, but I definitely don't see the gun attached to the smoke that Global News is pushing there. I think that's some healthy skepticism that you bring to this, definitely. The animation that they also released as a traffic model shows traffic backing up for 10 blocks. It's not a good sign, you know, <laughs> in combination with that quote. Uh, but you're right. We don't know the details about that. You know, for me, the story is like, not really a surprise. Everybody knows that this is a problem, as you said, and that this project has been poorly run from the beginning. Uh, of course, the discussion in as a result of this came up about, you know, when we're building new transit, new LRT, do we do it at grade? Do we go under or over? Very, very expensive. You've got Councilman McKean saying, maybe we should do that. You've got Mayor Iveson saying, we can't afford it. Um, it's a similar conversation as we've had many times before. And I think the mayor put it best that, yeah, you know, these intersections might fail for car drivers when there's 100,000 people a day making the trip on the train versus at our biggest intersections, maybe 20,000 vehicles a day making the trip in their cars. It's a no brainer that mass transit. And it's weird that we never have the conversation. Why are we justifying the trains have to go over or under? Why isn't it that, well, this is the people moving corridor and shouldn't the intersections have to justify, does the vehicle traffic justify the road going over and under the LRT right of way? It's a weird framing. And I guess, you know, the road is there first. But in terms of our transit strategy and in terms of our city plan, the LRT has priority. That's not at issue here. Everyone understands that the LRT is a higher priority mode of transportation than personal vehicles. Or at least they should. I mean, in that article, Brad Smead, who's one of the city's leads on the LRT expansion file, that's how Global described him, said, quote, we're expanding Yellowhead Trail and going to Expressway. And it's amazing how much changes like that will actually influence changes in the network, end quote. It's like people are upset about transit. Let's tell them we're expanding roadways. Which, in fairness, we are. Um, it's that's not a platitude there. It's the legitimate facts of the matter. Right. But does that really change the speed at which cars operate? I mean, we, we know there's induced demand. You add a lane, it doesn't make anything go faster. It just adds another lane full of traffic. In theory, at least, I suppose it's going to help move people away more quickly. But, you know, as you say, the, the bulk of the people moving is going to happen on the trains, not on the roads. It just seemed like a weird defense to go with to say, we're building lots of more roadways to fill up. The other part of this that it gives me great pain to talk about is how much of these LRT issues are just based on, dare I say it, incompetence. Anyone who's sat on the non-metro line, the place where we have the capital line signaling system over by Southgate Mall, or even worse, by the University of Alberta turning on to 112 or 114th Street, I can't remember which one it is, right south of the hospital. Anyone who's sat at those intersections knows if there's a train, you're sitting there for five minutes. Doesn't matter if you're a car or if you're a person walking or biking, Right, that intersection does not work. And it's purely a programming and priority issue. It is shocking to me that years or decades later, we still haven't solved those obvious issues that all Edmontonians know about. And that's such a quick win for the city. Just like, hey, we changed the programming on some of these arms and some of these traffic lights so that you don't have to wait five minutes anymore. I think these are the kinds of things that will 
cause the quick wins and really will get people more on board with the LRT file. And it's just, it is baffling to me that that doesn't seem to be something that the city is pursuing or has even talked about. It should be a quick win. I mean, why why do you think they haven't gone down that road? Did somebody ask for a consultant report one day and they said, no, that's not possible? If they have pursued this, they should be taking every opportunity to say, and for example, this intersection, this is the best possible operation. Here, look, we've already pursued it. Here's why the justification. Because I'm not the first person to have ever raised this issue. No, certainly not. It is well complained about often. Whoever's doing the media management for LRT really needs to up their game just a little bit because the narrative around LRT, the story we're telling around LRT, is one of buffoonery is the onlookers perspective of this right um so speaking of lrt buffoonery let's talk about the valley line lrt which according to councillor mike nickel is the biggest waste of taxpayer money in edmonton's history ever so mac why is he wrong about that well that sounds like something that councillor nickel would say but no he's wrong about that and we can get into that the news this week of course is that the valley line has passed the final step of approval from the province there's a letter written to Mayor Iveson from uh, the Minister of Transportation, Rick McIver. He noted some concerns in the line. I guess you can't just approve it. You've got to raise some issues, uh, but said that the city is working to mitigate those concerns. And a spokesperson for the ministry said that they have a few things to iron out, but they'll be executing the funding agreement for the project very, very soon. And so Councillor Knack was very excited about this and said this was the last he called it the last true hurdle that would have been in front of us. And whenever Councillor Knack is excited about something, you can bet that Councillor Nickel is going to take the opposite approach. If I'm listening to Rick McIver's statement correctly, it basically sounds like the province took their hardest look at this LRT, which I think it's fair to say that the UCP caucus probably didn't want. It would probably be ideal for people within the UCP caucus to say, hey, we found a reason to shelve the Valley Line West. Right. And they found nothing and they are executing the funding agreement immediately. Back to the point about, you know, why it's not a terrible project and the biggest waste of money. Uh, Councillor Knack decided to post a fact check thread on Twitter uh, and talked a bit about this. He, he said the Valley Line will move at the speed of traffic in its own dedicated right of way. He talked about a comparison, a report that compared it to BRT and uh, basically that the decision was made based on uh, the information available that the low floor system was the best option to address, he says, the variety of outcomes that are important for the future of Edmonton. And he mentioned specifically movement of people, of course, that's what trains do, but also opportunity for redevelopment. And and that's a big part of what this project is is all about. Yeah, the Valley Line is a clear example of looking at administration and consultant reports, making the best decision on what will be for the benefit of the city and the safety and the long-term sustainability and viability of the movement of its citizens. An example of where the city does not do that, for example, they take a look at the best available reports, data, and science, and decide to do the opposite because populism is our good old friend. Welcome back to the podcast, calcium chloride. Oh, you knew with the winter coming, we weren't going to be able to avoid this topic. Well, we are avoiding it on the city roads this week. Um, thanks to no shortage of councillor outrage, even the more 
what I would say reasonable counselors, seem to be vehemently opposed to calcium chloride because it is politically expedient to be. Just a quick recap for people who haven't been following this as closely as we have. Calcium chloride is a solution that can clear the roads better than salt at lower temperatures. Standard road salt, you know, at around five degrees below zero, it starts to freeze, start to lose some efficacy. Calcium chloride's effective right down to minus 20. So, you know, it's a better choice there. There had been some concerns about calcium chloride causing additional rust that through city reports were pretty well unsubstantiated, though those reports came as council and administration had increased regular salt usage, which would, of course, cause an increased rust. You can see over in Montreal, for examples of that. Long story short, there was a whole bunch of political kerfuffle. People got angry. People said, ah, we're going to cause three to six to eight billion dollars of private infrastructure damage on people's garages and cars because of this nasty calcium chloride. No real evidence to support that, but the brakes were put on. And now administration has said, okay, well, you said no calcium chloride. And you also said we've got to clear down to bay pavement because, you know, this vision zero and traffic safety stuff that we're committed to. So we're just going to up our salt usage. Okay. And this week, Cartmel said, nah, not K. Cartmel seemed to suggest that data from three winters, he said that the city only has detailed data from three winters is not enough to know whether there's a difference in damage caused by calcium chloride or road salt. He said, quote, I have grave concerns about the data we're collecting and the data we're not collecting, end quote. I don't know. That seems like enough to me. What's What, what more data do we need? Don't we have tons of data about calcium chloride? Hasn't anywhere else in the world ever done snow clearing before? Why do we have to invent science experiments? I didn't know Bill Nye, the science guy, sat on council. <laughs> I mean, this is a common thread through lots of city reports. We are not the first city to tackle most of these things. We should just be learning from what people are doing elsewhere. This is bizarre to me. And it will remain bizarre through the winter. But the skinny of it is despite Cartmel's concerns, we're going to be salting these roads. We're going to be trying to melt that snow and we're going to try and scrape it down. And we will see how it goes this winter. Hopefully, it doesn't cause cars to careen and slip and slide all over the road and crash right off onto the side onto your winter patio where all businesses will apparently be this winter because COVID. Yeah, the city introduced a what they call streamlined patio approval process back in May. So this would allow restaurants and stores to expand outside so they didn't need a permit they needed to pay a fee for it this is why at least downtown where i i live you've seen a lot more patios expanded out um, into the sidewalk that program was supposed to end december 31st and it will now run until march 31st 2021 um, we know now that over the summer about 97 restaurants and 11 stores registered for one of these temporary patios. Um, and so it's great that the city has decided to extend this. Those patios can continue to operate. But of course, a patio in the winter is very different than a patio in the summer. Uh, for one thing, there's snow. Uh, for another thing, it's cold. And so it remains to be seen how many people are actually going to want to sit on a patio. Uh, but we have heard of some pretty creative proposals. So Tiramisu Bistro, uh, on 124th Street and 108th Avenue, proposed three heated igloos that would be set up along the sidewalk, and the city denied that request. Three heated igloos. Doesn't that sound amazing? I'd go sit in one of those. Did the city give a reason that they denied this request? 
Well, they basically said that the challenges of snow removal, which we were just talking about, and increased slipping hazards make winter patios more complex. And so they evaluate these on a case-by-case -case basis. And they said during the winter, they're not going to redirect pedestrians into the curb lane as they did for the summer months because of the safety risk of going up and down the curb ramps. So what they did in the summers, you know, when a patio extended out to take over the sidewalk, they would allow pedestrians to go around that on the road. And they had these little yellow ramps to go up and down the sidewalk. And I guess those are going to be too slippery in the winter is the argument. It seems like a weak excuse to me. I can sort of understand it, especially in the winter. Going up and down curbs is difficult, though you have to do it at every block. Right. The thing that confuses me is just, well, if we're accepting that this space will be used, Okay, put the igloos in the curb lane and allow the sidewalk to walk through that. Uh, you know, your tiramisu bistro can just walk across the sidewalk when they're doing some service. I suspect the problem with this is the same problem that the city has with keeping the uh, COVID shared use lanes open during the winter. And that's just snow clearing is expensive. They want to use that curb lane to pile snow so that they don't have to reduce vehicle lanes. And if people are there, then you can't put snow there. Yeah, you're probably right. That was that was what we were talking about today. It's probably all about the snow clearing. The thing about patios, though, in the winter that is... Oh, I was waiting. I was waiting for Mac to get out his rant, and here it comes. <laughs> the thing about patios in the winter is that there is snow. That's true. And it is cold. That's also true. But the biggest problem, if you're sitting outside trying to enjoy a meal, is the wind. And all of the discussion is about heaters. And people are talking about those propane heaters that have been set up. And of course, those have the heat way at the top, which doesn't actually do anything to keep you warm. And then we've heard about in other countries, they have heating built into the tables. So it heats your legs, which is better, but still not anything to do with the wind. I think the biggest problem with sitting outside in the winter is the wind. Most patios and most outdoor eating locations are not sheltered. They're completely exposed. And so no matter how many heaters you have around, it's not going to help when it gets windy. Probably the best one in in uh, in Edmonton for this is at La Cité Francophone because, of course, it, it goes down. It's embedded into the ground, kind of. And so you get this sort of natural shelter uh, around where you're seating. But most places don't have that. And for all the discussion about heating and what we're going to do, are people going to go outside? Is it going to be too cold? I've seen very little about wind, which is one of the reasons why I thought these igloos were a good idea, because you actually then get some shelter from the wind. Where should restaurants contact you for consultation on their winter patio strategy? <laughs> I'm at Master Mac everywhere you go. And look, before you at me, I know that this is an investment, right? It's not inexpensive to set up an outdoor patio. But if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. I mean, this is a hard thing because I get it. We don't know if people are going to go. We don't know if people are going to be willing to eat outside in the winter, whether or not they're sheltered from the wind. Uh, but just putting up a propane heater isn't going to be enough. So we're going to pivot out of that and to our final topic of the day. And we'll keep this brief because... We don't want to talk about the election. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that it's too early to talk about the election, which is happening in October of 2021, over a year away, or almost exactly a year away to the date now. But one person definitely is talking about the election this week, and that's Cheryl Watson, who we previously talked about uh, with the Edmonton Innovation Entity. We had assumed she would be selected as a CEO, and she was not. 
And it turns out because she is planning on running for mayor. And that was announced this week on her blog. Yeah, Cheryl actually didn't put her name forward for that role, and now I guess we know why. Uh, She announced on her blog this week that she's intending to run for mayor in the next election. So a little bit of nuance there, not that she's running, but that she intends to run. And between now and then, her plan is essentially to listen. And you had some thoughts about that, Troy. Yeah, so not only did I receive several texts about this uh, saying roughly the same thing, The crux of it all is she announced that she intends to run to be our mayor in 2021. This is clearly something that she's put a lot of thought into and a lot of planning. And she's got, you know, some branding and design and a website and some guiding principles. The thing is, her guiding principles, as someone who's been in software development and been in corporate structures, are a bunch of business bingo buzzwords. They don't tend to mean a lot of things. They're saying we need to rebuild our relationship with the province. We need a better experience for all citizens. We need an agile city organization, etc, etc. And the primary crux of her plan is to talk with people, which again, is a fine thing. But to announce that you're starting crazy season a year before contribute not really anything meaningful from your own perspectives and to say that you're just going to talk and listen to people sounds like either this is a farce and it's not something that she's actually meaningfully consulting about and she just is using this as a stepping stone to release her platform and say it's justified based on the consultation I did or the alternative it is and she doesn't know what she's doing in which case Why are you announcing a mayoral run? It doesn't sound like you know what you want to do as mayor. I would say to be mayor of the city of Edmonton, you need to have clear leadership qualities and you need to have a vision. Don Iveson, when he ran first, was the LRT mayor. He had a vision and that vision was mappable. When I go and see Cheryl Watson's vision, I expected something exciting. But instead, I found literally the most dull corporate jargon I could find. And that seems like a weird take to start election crazy season. So I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think it is way too early. But I do want to say two things, maybe just to play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, The first is, I don't think we should underestimate how important it is that serious people think about putting their name forward for public office. Already having Cheryl in the race for mayor makes this a better race for mayor than we had last time. That's an improvement that we should be celebrating. And anytime somebody, you know, is willing to put their name forward, I think that should be recognized. The other thing I would just say from a, this is the devil's advocate point of view is didn't Andrew Knack start really, really early? Like, isn't there something to be said for hitting the ground running like way ahead of everybody else and sort of building up to that? I mean, I think you're right that it's too early probably. And I agree about the vision, but is could you look at it that way? You could, but Andrew Knack is a bad politician. Sorry, Andrew, I know you're listening. <laughs> you kind of are. He's been elected. Maybe, maybe. But I would say his method of being elected by running a bunch of times, starting when he was too young and just hitting doors until people say, oh, aren't you already my counselor because you've been here so often? I don't know that that's a viable electoral strategy on a broad scale. I mean, it worked for him. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, but he is the counselor. So that's it's fair. And you're probably right. We're probably not quite as charitable. Cheryl, if you want to come on the podcast and talk about how I'm wrong, we will definitely develop some sort of candidate 
talkback system so that we are not simply from on high saying, this is why your corporate jargon won't win elections. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely give further thought to this significantly down the line closer to the election because it is too early. What it's not too early for is our closing ad because we're all out of time. This episode is brought to you by Unbelts, the Edmonton-based biz that makes the comfiest stretched belts around. Unbelts also makes cloth masks, and you're going to need more of those whether you're heading back to school or are already back at school or are just living in a city that requires masks indoors or on the bus. Unbelts masks are designed by serious perfectionists. The masks follow all the latest WHO guidelines, they're ethically made right down to their components, but most importantly, they're super comfortable, even if you have to wear them all day. I have a bunch of them, as I've mentioned before, and I can attest to that. They are excellent to wear. The masks come in all sorts of colors and in four sizes, from preschooler to adult extra large, and they've even been featured in Parents Magazine, Elle Canada, and were named Best in Edmonton. Head to unbelts.ca to order your masks today. Shipping is always free. And you can use the code APN for a free mini laundry bag just for being a listener to an Alberta Podcast Network podcast. Once again, that's unbelts.ca, and you can use the promo code APN. And that's all for this week. It was nice. Just the two of us. Back to the basics. We should renew our vows sometime. <laughs> back to basics sounds dangerous, but yes, yes. Oh, man, I did say back to basics, didn't you I? You did. You did. It was right there. People on Twitter who were tweeting about this, please don't at me. Um, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.